Thank you to our choir. I'm excited to hear more of Song of the Shadows this Friday at our Good Friday concert. That's a, that's a wonderful preview of that event. Today is Palm Sunday, and uh, my son is with me today in his little bow tie and suspenders and teal shorts because, I mean, come on, that's why we have kids, right? Um, and Jude is two and a half, so he's of that age where his favorite word, if you know two and a half year olds, his favorite word is no, except Jude is polite and very proper, and he says, no, sir. No, sir. No, no, sir. No, sir. And so I don't know whether to be impressed or frustrated, right? Wow, that's like really kind and respectful, but you're still not listening to me. And you know, it's tough when you're trying to explain to a two and a half year old that like there's these rules we have in public where like you have to wear clothes and we're going to have to cross that bridge at some point in your maturity where in order to leave the house, you got to be wearing something, literally anything, and not always the same Elmo shirt. Um, no, sir. No, 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 sir. It, it doesn't really change much between the ages of two and a half and 92 and a half. <laughs> we don't like to be controlled. We don't like to be told what to do or to feel like we have to follow somebody else's orders. There's a natural human nature to us that likes to buck that even at an early age and all through adulthood as well. And so then when we look at the life of faith, and specifically the Christian life of faith, as we look at the story of who Jesus was and is and how Jesus lived and died and rose again, there's this word that we're going to encounter that may prove difficult. Surrender. Mm. Surrender. Not an easy word to hear, not an easy word to live into, and yet the path of Lent, this season of preparation, of preparing for Easter Sunday and the empty tomb, that path leads through the theme of surrender. So let's talk about surrender today as we continue in this Lenten series called Living Lent, where we've been looking at some of the stories of Jesus, allowing ourselves to really feel the sand beneath his feet, to hear the crowds, and to experience what it meant to live as Jesus lived, so that that life may become our own. Today we're going to be turning our attention to the Palm Sunday text, and then another text from Holy Week, this Holy Week that we're in. If you don't know, Palm Sunday is a day in the life of the Christian calendar when we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, that sort of marking of his final week on earth, when he comes to finally confront that which we know everything has been building towards. And that's why we've got these palm fronds all over and why we hear words like Hosanna. That'll make more sense in a moment if you've not heard those words before. Let's turn our attention now to Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Gospel of Matthew Chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible translation. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave two disciples a task. He said to them, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter, you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anybody says anything to you, say that the Lord needs it. He sent them off right away. Now this happened to fulfill what the prophet had said. Say to daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the donkey's offspring. 
the disciples went and did just as Jesus had ordered them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them, and then he sat on them. Now a large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others cut palm branches off the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds in front of him and behind him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Have you ever been disappointed by something overhyped? So a phrase or a word that means something that has received these expectations that are impossibly high. Have you ever been let down by something that was overhyped? If you're with us online, I'm curious what, what comes to mind for you. Put that in the chat. I think of In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> Wasn't sure that was going to go. Uh, I mean, but for real. So, I mean, I, I've, I've lived in this area my whole life, and, and when In-N-Out Burger was coming, I mean, you'd have thought that Jesus was showing up in Jerusalem, right? Like, y'all, you don't understand. You've never tasted a burger before until you've got this one. And after the lines died down, because for the first, like, month, there were, like, 87 people in line. Every time I drove by one of the locations, I went through. I ordered the burger. It was a burger. It was a burger. It was okay. The fries? Hot take. Not good. Trash fries. Not good fries. There are good fries and bad fries. I understand they're like fresher or whatever. Okay, fine. I guess I like unfresh fries that are gross and bad for me. Those are the good ones, right? Um, you can't convince me those are tasty fries. I'll put the Whataburger patty melt up against any fast food burger any day of the week. Can I get a witness this morning? Thank you. We now know where all the Texans are in the room. My wife, on the other hand, is from Kansas, so she would say the, what has disappointed her that's been overhyped is literally everything Texas, because um, she's, she's rude uh, and not inaccurate. Um, specifically, the Alamo. We went to San Antonio this past summer, and you know, the Alamo is one of those things that even if you don't live in Texas, you hear about. It's in the old Pee Wee Herman movie. Everybody remembers the Alamo, right? But you know, as a kid that grew up in Texas, I learned about it two different times. We'd take two full years of Texas history because we are kind of insane. And then you'd go to San Antonio and you're like walking around downtown and then there, there, there it is. That's the, that, that, that's the Alamo that we're supposed to, that's it? That's the whole thing? We didn't want to like dress it up or it? No, it's just, that's it. Okay. Um, have you ever been disappointed by something that didn't live up to the hype? There's a tension in the text that we just heard right a moment ago. And the tension is between what the people expect versus who Jesus truly arrives as. The Gospel of Matthew is written for a uniquely Jewish audience. He's making a case for Jesus as the Messiah for the Jewish people, that he is the, the, the one who's been prophesied before, right? That's why throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's all these connections to ancient Hebrew prophecies, and we don't see those as much in the other Gospel accounts because Matthew's really trying to draw these strong connections as he's speaking to a uniquely Jewish audience. And so we'll notice that the title the crowd gives Jesus in Matthew's account of Palm Sunday is the Son of David. Now, David is an important name for people in the Jewish tradition. 
Jesus' earthly father was Joseph, so they're not saying he's literally the son of David. He's saying he's coming from the line of King David, the king that was like the best thing that ever happened to Israel, at least if you look with rose-tinted glasses and consider the glory days. Don't we do that? Oh, that's when things were really good. David was the one that conquered Goliath. David was the one who united the kingdom of Israel. David's the one that we've never seen a second one of since. Of course, when we read King David's story, it's a lot messier than perhaps we like to remember. But Jesus being heralded as son of David carries with it these kinds of expectations that here comes a king, and sure, maybe a humble king, but a king nonetheless. The kind of king that's going to come in and cast out the oppressive occupying forces of Rome. The kind of king who's going to remind us who we are and give us strength. The kind of king that is going to be for the nation of Israel. And instead they receive Jesus. The kind of king who does ride in humbly on a donkey and on a colt. The kind of king who does not seek to conquer Caesar in a traditional way. In fact, rather than seeking battle with the Roman occupiers, instead he first sets his sights on flipping tables in the Jewish temple. Some son of David he turns out to be. The sad truth is that this moment of celebration that the the crowd is singing, Hosanna, here he is, this moment of celebration is truly going to be a moment, just a morning. It's the peak of of Jesus' popularity in the city of Jerusalem because very quickly they're going to realize this is not living up to the hype. This is not meeting our expectations of who we thought we were going to receive. Stirs up a question within me and i believe this text asks us all this question this week are we only willing to follow god when god lives up to our expectations are we only willing to stand there in celebration and wave our palm fronds as long as god shows up as who we want god to be and the second that god shows up as anything different the second our faith leads us to something different the second that we are challenged and our expectations are not met precisely in the way that we want them to be we drop the palm fronds and we take god to task and put him to trial are we only willing to follow god are we only willing to follow jesus are we only willing to live into our faith so long as they meet our expectations You may have noticed early in this story, it mentioned Jesus was coming from the Mount of Olives. It's interesting that Matthew mentions that because it's not the last time that location shows up this Holy Week. In fact, as we continue to reflect on what it means to surrender in our faith, perhaps to follow this very unexpected king, we'll notice that the Mount of Olives shows up in the moment, the moment right before Jesus is arrested and his crucifixion takes place. We now fast forward to Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. And it says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, which literally means the olive press. So it's on this Mount of Olives, Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, stay here while I go and pray over there. When he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, that's James and John, he began to feel sad and anxious. And then he said to them, 
I'm very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep alert with me. Then he went a short distance farther and fell on his face and prayed, My God, if it's possible, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not what I want, but what you want. He came back to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Could you not stay alert one hour with me? Stay alert and pray so that you won't give in to temptation, or perhaps that word means trial. The spirit is eager, Jesus says, but the flesh is weak. A second time he went away and prayed, My father, if it's not possible that this cup be taken away unless I drink it, then let it be what you want. Again he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy with sleep. But he left them and again went and prayed the same words for the third time. And then he came to his disciples and said to them, Will you sleep and rest all night? Look, the time has come for the human one to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. Look, here comes my betrayer. When I was first considering ordained ministry as a calling upon my life. I was in high school, um, and I met with my, my pastor at my home church at the time, and, and she told me something as I was considering college. As she said, whatever you do, do not major in religious studies, because if you do go to seminary, they're just going to reteach you everything there anyways. They assume you don't know anything when you go to seminary. So she said, major in something that you find interesting, that you think may be applicable, whether or not you become a pastor, quite frankly, because you're still young. And so I majored in literary analysis, um, which everyone knows leads to a lot of hot job prospects. Um, but I was interested in that. I, you know, I, I, love, I, I love analyzing literature. I, I love uh, looking at the second and third layer of what the author perhaps intends. And it really did prove to be a helpful undergrad because now I look at uh, scripture through the lens at times of literary analysis because in addition to being for me, a holy and sacred text, it's also just a really beautiful text and an important one. And I don't think you can really separate um, the, the literature from the Bible. And most stories follow a similar arc, sort of the, the generic story arc. It begins with what's called exposition, where you kind of introduce the main characters, the setting, get a sense of the world. And then there's an inciting incident, that something that kind of sparks the story into forward momentum. And then there's a series of what's called rising actions, and in some stories this can take a long time of things happening and plots developing and characters deepening, and, and we begin to understand the story in that world in a new and, and more profound way. And then there's that climactic moment, that, that climax, that, you know, it's the great battles in Lord of the Rings or the, or the uh, lightsaber duel in Star Wars or that really emotional conversation in every rom-com because someone accidentally overheard something, but they misheard it. It's the same plot point in literally every rom-com. And why won't you just take me back? You know, the climax, when we feel the most, and then everything that follows is called falling action, a result of that choice or those choices or that moment, climactic moment. And then the denouement where everything is just sort of wrapped up with a tidy bow. 
You know, for a long time, the, the sort of classical interpretation of Scripture, of the Gospels, has been to see the crucifixion as that climactic moment. This is the climax of the Gospels. But I would, I would hesitate, or I would, I would dare to disagree. When I look at the Gospels through a literary lens, for me, that climactic moment is here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because if we look through the eyes of our protagonist, and we allow ourselves to feel what he is feeling, do you notice what he describes? Jesus says, I am very sad. I feel like I'm dying. It's this peak emotional moment for Jesus where he may not be battling in a traditional sense. He's, he's not fighting Sauron or Darth Vader or trying to win somebody back. He's, he's wrestling within his own spirit. These human and divine wills alive in Christ are at work in, in ways against each other. God, if you could do anything else, if you could remove this cup from me, please, but not what I want, but what you want. For me, this is the climactic moment of the Gospels. Everything that follows, the crucifixion, the empty tomb, the trials and tribulations, everything that follows is a result of the choice, the singular choice that Jesus makes here. And what is that choice? Let's dive a little deeper. At the end of this scene, you may have heard Jesus refer to himself with a certain title, not as the son of David, but instead he calls himself the human one, or in other translations, the son of man. Or in other translations, in other areas, the son of Adam, the human one, the son of man, the son of Adam. He doesn't think of himself as the son of David. In fact, in the, in the chapter we just read, in that chapter alone, he calls himself the human one five times. This is the title that Jesus seems to identify with. Now again, Matthew's speaking to a uniquely Jewish audience. And so if you were steeped in Jewish tradition and you heard a phrase like the son of man or the son of Adam, Adam simply meaning man in Hebrew, your mind would immediately go to Genesis 3, another garden story involving another man who makes a choice, though a very different one. If you're not familiar, in Genesis 3, we're in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve choose to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A more accurate translation of that phrase from the Hebrew might sound something like the knowledge of knowing what's best for oneself. No, sir. No, sir. No, sir. No, sir. Right? It's old. The tree of knowing what's good for myself. Adam chooses selfishly. And then Adam hides from God, treats God like an antagonist in his life, hiding, avoiding contact, and, and ends up suffering as a result of his own self-centered will and leaves that garden of peace and of mercy and of love to enter into a world full of conflict. And then here, in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the son of Adam, the human one, enters into a garden riddled with conflict. Betrayal is right on the edge waiting to take him. And he surrenders to the divine will of God, selflessly offering himself over to betrayal and eventually murder. And he seeks God not as an enemy, but as a friend and a guide and will suffer for the sake of the world placed upon a cross, or as Paul calls it in the letter to the Galatians, he is hung on a tree a violent tool meant to judge good and evil? Do you hear the parallels? That tree's power broken by the selfless sacrifice of Jesus. This new fruit 
offered to humanity so that in him we might find the selfless divine truth of what truly is best, not just for ourselves, but for all. Jesus did not come to conquer Caesar. He may be the son of David, but not in that way. He came to conquer selfishness and greed and corruption and violence and the notion that we are meant to look out only for ourselves. All these things we wrap up together and call sin. Jesus came to conquer that. We tend to misunderstand surrendering to God's will as simply obedience to some list of rules. Notice how the disciples like to receive orders from Jesus as the son of David. Yes, king, march me around. Give me my orders. I'll do what you say. Sometimes we good churchy people like to be told, just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to live. I, I can follow orders really well, but that's not what surrender to the human one looks like. In the garden, we're reminded that surrender is ultimately about prayerfully walking through life and choosing selfless love as often as we can. And notice that Jesus himself prays three times before his will surrenders to God's. Three times. How powerful it is to have an image of a Savior who, like me, is not going to get it the first time out. How nice would it be if I could go to God and say, God, just show me how to live. But it doesn't work like that. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes patience. My friends, we like to follow conquering kings, but Jesus leads us to surrender to God's selfless love. We like to herald the son of David because we like the idea of what that will mean for our life. But instead, we're invited to a garden with the son of Adam, with the human one. Two things about surrendering to God's selfless love that I think are important to note as we come to a close today. Number one, surrender is not passive. Now that might sound like an odd statement. Surrendering in our faith is not a passive thing. Notice that Jesus' instructions to his disciples as he leaves the garden, once he himself has allowed himself to surrender to God's will, what does he say? Get up, let's go. I've got something to do. Now that I have surrendered, I know what my life is about. I know what I must do. And action takes hold. Surrendering is not passive. And it's also, number two, not perfect. In the garden, we're not given an impossibly high expectation to meet. Notice Jesus brings along three of his most trusted friends. He doesn't want to be alone. He's human. He is sad and he's grieving. He doesn't want to be alone. And his three best friends in the world fall asleep on him. And I don't think it's included there for us to chuckle or laugh or point fingers, but instead to say, how often am I like Peter or the sons of Zebedee? And in a moment when I'm asked to surrender, I fall asleep. And instead, rather than Jesus waking them up and casting them out or admonishing them or filling them with shame and guilt, Jesus simply says, come on, get up, let's go. We'll try again. I think it's helpful for me to hear that this selfless love is not something I'm just invited to share, but it's something I'm invited to receive and to know on a deep and personal level. Some of us are really good at sharing selfless love with everyone around us, and we don't allow it to touch our own soul or to fill our own hearts. We're invited to. This Palm Sunday and this Holy Week, 
May we receive Jesus and celebrate Him as the Son of David, yes, but may we receive Jesus into our lives and into our world as the human one. The one who invites us to lead from celebration to surrender, to accept and then share God's selfless love that it could live in us and come alive in this world. Hosanna. Hosanna. Amen.